Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. Today's episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Malini Bandaru, who leads open source IoT and edge efforts at VMware. Malini has a PhD in machine learning from the University of Massachusetts, and prior to joining VMware, worked on big data for autonomous driving and OpenStack for cloud infrastructure management at Intel. In this interview, Malini discusses her work in the Open Source Technology Center at VMware, the valuable role that open source plays in IoT and Edge, and interesting use cases for how Edge is solving macro problems. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors. Over the Edge is brought to you by the generous sponsorship of Catchpoint, NetFoundry, Ori Industries, Packet, Seagate, Vapor.io, and Zenlayer. The featured sponsor of this episode of Over the Edge is Vapor.io, the leader in edge computing. We want to be your solution partner for the new internet. Learn more at vapor.io. And now, please enjoy this interview between Malini Bandaru, open source lead for IoT and Edge at VMware, and your host, Matt Trefiro. Hello, everybody. My name is Matt Trefiro, and I'm the Chief Marketing Officer of Vapor.io, and I'm also the co-chair of the State of the Edge project at the Linux Foundation. And I'm here today with Malini Bandaru of VMware. She leads the open source IoT and Edge efforts at VMware. So Malini, tell me a little bit how you even got into technology. At home, my dad's a scientist. He's a nuclear physicist and an astronomer. So it was kind of natural. So I don't take much credit for that. It was like, you know, science everywhere at home. Oh, that's great. So what type of technology first captured your interest? I wanted to become a doctor. And now I'm a computer scientist. So I have a PhD. That's the difference. <laughs> You're a doctor, just in, in, <laughs> kind in of computer medical science. Doctor. <laughs> yeah, that's great. What led you to IoT and Edge? It's certainly a narrow space, or at least it's growing now, but uh, certainly when you get started. You know what? It's not narrow. That's, that's the beautiful thing. It's everything. I mean, if you were a kernel Linux developer, you you have a kernel on that edge device that has to do the compute, okay? But it's on maybe a smaller constraint device. You need cloud because at the end of the day, if you have lots of these edge nodes, all the data has to come to one place. You want to analyze it. You want to have a dashboard view of it. You want to maybe monitor and manage it from a very remote location. You don't exactly want to go to the oil drills or the wind turbines that are all over the place. So the awesome thing is it just combines everything you know, whether it's security and cryptography and blockchain and machine learning and and just collecting sensor data that comes across to you from different protocols. It's just everything. Yeah, yeah. So when you say IoT and Edge, you don't just mean the devices or the compute that's near those devices. You mean everything in the value chain that's needed to deliver an end-to-end solution. Yeah. That's, that's pretty cool. Do you remember when the idea of edge as a you know slice through the entire world became something that that you saw as a focus colleagues when i was at umass doing my phd he created a little internet device it was fitting on a pinhead and that's you know my god the hardware technology has become so small so easily accessible and affordable that you can stick it on anything you know it's like a little dot like now start talking to the internet type of thing so for me it's like You've pushed compute right into your remote environments and it's it's just everywhere. And if you want to like maybe monitor earth vibrations, you know, some seismic region or some volcanic region, the only part that's going to be hard and troublesome is the ruggedized box around it because you can't go to these places easily. 
So for me, we brought a really, I know it sounds kludgy, to the edge, deep into your environment. And that's the power of what's happened in the last 30, 40 years because technology has advanced so much. Do you remember when it was that you saw that device? Well, maybe 30 years ago. That was long, long ago. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, that's really interesting. You know, because I, I did some, as part of the State of the Edge project, I did some research and I tried to find the first reference to edge computing in the academic literature, uh, or any literature, actually. And I could only trace it as far back as the paper that the guys at MIT wrote before they started Akamai. So Akamai, which uh, was it 90, something like that? Yeah, yeah. That, that's around the time during my PhD days. And we didn't use the word IoT. We didn't use the word edge then. It was like all the enabling factors. Here's this little pinhead internet connected device, you know, and my colleague's name then is, is still Sri. I forgot his last name, but it's Sri. So he, he did this little thing. He's had a couple of startups and yeah. So you got your, your PhD in computer science. Did you immediately go in, into industry or did you do something else? Uh, yes. Um, back in those days, I got a PhD in machine learning and AI. It wasn't such a hot topic then. There weren't that many industry jobs then. There weren't that many academic positions then. So I said, okay, um, let me take yeah, an industry job. it was hot in 1987. <laughs> and then, then it wasn't hot until, until about eight or exactly. nine years ago. <laughs> so um, uh, so in those days, I took a job at GT Labs, which has since become Verizon. And basically, we did some kind of pattern matching. They had these telephones that were, you know, in little boxes and kiosks and people might cut cables and you might lose and, you know, your connectivity, there's an outage. So we were trying to like just use patterns, like where are these alarms, where are they spatially, temporally to kind of say, who went and cut which cable where, you know, kind of so, like So you were doing predictive maintenance yeah. with, with edge devices before anybody had even given them a name. Yeah, those edge devices didn't communicate, so that was their communication. <laughs> That's really great. That's really great. And then, and then did you go straight to Intel? No, so it's a little journey to get to Intel. I worked at GT Labs. Then I worked at Nuance, the speech recognition and their product, you know, Dragon Software got used by multiple other companies. So it was the early speech recognition stuff. And they had like 94% accuracy when you, you know, like read a few paragraphs, maybe 10 paragraphs. I used paragraphs. to use that tool. It was really, it's yeah. not as good as the tools are today, but it was, certainly was amazing. It was like yeah, pure magic. Then in a limited vocabulary set, like say you're a radiologist, they give you like 10 little paragraphs, you read it, 94% accuracy, which reduces all the time that the doctors have to spend transcribing things, see? Yes. So, uh, and it recognized my voice, and that was one of the criteria. Like, okay, I can join this company. <laughs> That's great. That's really interesting. I wonder. I wonder if they trained it with with accents. Do you know? They did, and then they had a version that did something called Hinglish, like Hindi and English for the Indian environment. So, yeah, they were pretty ahead. And before the Nuance product, I had tried some Google voice recognition. It was so bad, we said, "Forget it. We'll never get home using this to direct us." It's come a long way. Gotcha. And then Intel? <laughs> um, yeah, after Nuance, it was Intel. And when they invited me to join, it was like, wow, you know, I've done my PhD. I used to, uh, you know, DEC had this alpha computer. And before that, it was like TI's Explorer. And they were like hunking big machines. The TI Explorer was the size of a large microwave or a dorm fridge. It would heat up by 10 a.m. in the morning. And then I would say, okay, the fan points to you by 4 p.m. It would heat up if I didn't put AC. So this was like the, the fussy kid in the house, you know. 
And so when Intel gave me the chance to work Did with them. Did it have them, tubes and, then, and physical switches in it? Ex- exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm heating up, like, you know, I'm going to collapse steps. So when Intel called me, I was like, wow, I have an opportunity to work on processors that are faster, that are multi-core, all the things that were like holding me back when I was doing my PhD to do machine learning AI. Interesting. So it, was, yeah. it was a dream come true. I knew really nothing is how I felt. And then you realize like a lot of hardware is like a lot like software, but it runs much, much faster. And you do caching on your software, you do caching on your hardware, you do minimal instruction sets, you have just larger ideas and functions in, you know, in your software. So it was an awesome journey. And that's what brought me to open source. That's interesting. So, so your, your first exposure to open source in any uh, meaningful way was when you were at Intel. Yeah, I see. I mean, they'd never done it before. I might have used it before. I had used like when I was working more than 15, 16 years back on an IoT Edge project, it was for remote monitoring and management. I used like OpenSwan and FreeSwan for setting up VPNs. I used Linux, but I'd never really contributed anything. And so my open source journey started at Intel when I started working on OpenStack. Got it. And so now you're at VMware. And as we talked about the start of the show, your primary responsibility is open source with IoT and Edge. Did you join VMware to basically be a liaison to the open source communities? So VMware about nearly four years back, I think, uh, started their own open source technology center. So here's this you know, established software company that does virtualization. They even use a lot of open source. They have an open source project called OpenV Switch, but they hadn't quite embraced open source. And part of them hiring Dirk Hondel, you know, he joined as a VP, was to launch this open source technology center to make us more open source friendly, compliant in its use, a good citizen in contributing back. And then Dirk was building this whole open source group in this company. And that's how I joined. That's great. That's great. Uh, so you were there right at the beginning when VMware was um, starting. Yeah, I took a little time to join. I think a year and a half into it or more. I was like, yeah, I'll think about it. Yeah, okay, I'm, I'm here now. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so, I mean, you're a scientist with pretty serious, you know, technology chops. What led you, it seems like a, a little bit of a career pivot to, I don't imagine you write much code anymore, or do you? Do you write a lot of code? At VMware, I have that opportunity again, and it's nice. It's like I when you're it. at Intel. I and then you're a long at, time ago. <laughs> yeah. When I was at Intel early on, I did write a lot of code. One of the first things I worked was on a power performance uh, you know, solution for Intel's chips. So you have multiple cores, but they are connected by a ring or a mesh or something so they can communicate, send data between each other and things like that. Now, what frequency should you operate this at? I mean, the, the faster you run it, you consume more power, you heat up more, et cetera. So you can actually modulate this frequency because now there's technology to control it through software. But at what frequency do you do it? And if you have like eight cores or 18 cores or 64 cores, you can't just say, I'm going to change them all at the same time. You have to watch what's running on each of them. And then maybe do them in little chunks at 333 so that you have the latency, interrupt handling latency not messed up. So I did a lot of software. And then when I moved into, you know, open source and cloud, I got a chance to do some more software. But with time, that's reducing when you have like 78 people, then you're mainly doing code review. So now here at VMware, I can do little bits of software. I can prototype things and then somebody else might even throw it out and say I can do it better. And that's normal too. So 
I've gotten back into writing some Python code. I've gotten into writing Go code. I can still look at Java and understand it. So yeah, so I get to do everything now <laughs> because I don't have to lead a big team. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> that's nice. And, and so can you describe to me your job today? Like what you, how you allocate your time? It sounds like you have a lot of freedom. Like what, what do you see as your objectives and, and what are you trying to accomplish on a day-to-day basis? So right now, because I'm edge IoT focused, it's not just going to be like, you know, I work with a project called EdgeX Foundry. So it's writing a little bit of code or maybe making EdgeX Foundry easier to use or better documented or whatever. But at the end of the day, your edge is not going to be one edge. It's about lots of these so that it's going to scale. And then how do you monitor them? How do you manage them? And might you use something like Kubernetes to run at the edge so you have, you know, high availability of resiliency? Like you can't hope to get away with just one single server, one single Raspberry Pi at the edge because how do you update it? What if it fails? I mean, you have to plan for that sort of thing. And that's why it makes sense to think of your edge as a cluster of machines, depending on how valuable it is or you know, how much is riding of your economics on that. And if you're going to make it a little cluster at the edge, then maybe you want to use Kubernetes because it's the most popular kid on the block. It has the large community working towards it. A lot of people know those APIs. So then you want to think about your edge application running in such a cluster. And that's some of the things that we we are now focusing on. Like what if I'm running one of those LF edge projects, LF edge is the Linux foundation edge that you are very well aware of. How do I run that maybe on a little Kubernetes cluster? How do I monitor them? How do I manage them? And And which open source projects in this palette of solutions can I use? And, is there any gap over there? So one of the things I firmly believe is, is you can write open source, but you're dreaming up things that you need, features you need. And the best way instead is to have a problem that you're trying to solve and say, oh, I can't do that. I need to do it. And that brings out the gaps and the problems you need to address first. So it's not like a solution and finding a problem that it fixes, but having a problem and then a solution that, that addresses it. Is there any particular problem you're working on now? So right now, one of the things we got interested in, and this is because Pat Gelsinger, VMware's you know, CEO, says, what are we doing in sustainability? And as part of that, we have a microgrid project at VMware, and we have two buildings with you know, photovoltaic cells, two big storage What is batteries. a microgrid for listeners who don't know? So the grid is another word just for saying your whole electric grid, okay? That's what brings in the power from a power you know, generation plant, be it a nuclear power plant or coal firing plant. And it comes down transmission lines right up into your house. And it's typically one-way flow. It comes from the power plants through those transmission into your home, into your office, whatever. So now a microgrid is like a little island that's, you know, homes, offices, whatever, these consuming endpoints. But there might possibly be some generators over there, maybe a wind turbine, maybe photovoltaic cells or some batteries. And it can disconnect from that main grid and its transmission lines and still operate as a complete unit, as a little island that's separated. And the future of the grid is not only do you take power from upstream utility, but maybe you can sell back or return power to this grid. And why is that important? Because think of this whole electric grid as like, you know, power coming in and power going out like, a, you know, 
a water pipe and a tap. And then if the tap's not open and water's just coming in, it can just bunch up there and explode. So there was always this issue of flow and then, and the government also requires it to be you know, resilient, secure, and then meeting the needs of the customers. And that's not easy. And even with all these renewables, your sun comes up in the day and it's not there at night, but people are using power at night. Yeah. So there is a difference in supply and demand, and that brings the need for you know, these carbon-rich fuels like coal to meet that difference of consumption and supply. So what if you could, in this smarter grid, save some energy in a battery when that sun was there or the wind was there and supply it back to the grid so it doesn't have to bring in those coal-firing plants? That's the whole notion behind decarbonization. That's a perfect edge use case. So connect those dots for us. So how does IoT and Edge and the technologies, the hardware and software technologies that encompass that, well, and to your point, all the way up to the cloud, how does that make a microgrid possible? What's different? So let's just back up a little. Why do you need IoT and Edge? I mean, why the Edge in IoT? Let's say you have electric vehicle chargers. You have to know what's happening constantly. Who's charging? Who's not charging? How much power is being used? So that's the real-time aspect of this data. Then maybe you have your HVAC system. Maybe you have a data center. So you want to be tracking in real-time what's happening. Now you know if there is slack, if there's extra power available that you could maybe give some other consumer. So you you can shunt power from here to there or from a battery or from a generation plant from location A to location B without bringing maybe a coal-firing plant. Got it. So, so if I understand correctly, what IoT and Edge enables is the ability for a software application to be aware of the conditions out in the field, what's being used, where power is, you know, what, what the battery levels are, and then to make decisions about where to route power where there might be a surplus of power that could be redirected somewhere else. Exactly. And there could be even another little commercial angle to it. Like, hey, I can turn off my washer dryer now or something and I can give you power because maybe you're ready to pay more for it or something. And so another thing, and this might be because where we are located. So Pat wanted to build this microgrid to see how we can, you know, help towards this the smarter grid. Mm-hmm. And uh, also we're right next to Stanford. What are they doing in this space? And they have Stanford Bits and Watts, you know, and a whole initiative around better batteries. And what if electric vehicle charging becomes like a 50% adoption kind of thing, like every other car is one of these. Now think about these 75 kilowatt hour kind of little batteries mobile little entities, they might be driving. And if they're not, they can give the power that they've saved up to the grid. And that can help smooth things. But what are the other issues? Yes, there's security. There's all this distributed nature. There's unpredictableness. I mean, we can't trust that Matt's going to give his battery today to charge back something, right? I mean, you might be driving somewhere. Maybe not now because it's COVID. But, but you see, so there is this uncertainty. There is question about availability, there's security, there's also this sort of notion like a policy, you might say, hey, you know, during nine to five, I'm ready to share with you my power because I'm charging it in the cheapness of the sun or something, and I'm not driving anywhere. So there are all kinds of things that it opens up. So this is like a perfect IoT edge use case. And I say, why don't we use EdgeX Foundry here to collect that data from these devices? It's also a very interesting space for us because one of those consuming endpoints is 
a data center. So today, if you were to ask Google, how much power do you consume? They won't share that with you, but they'll share with you like two years back, they were spending as much power as the city of San Francisco. Globally. Yeah. That's enormous. It's an enormous amount of power. And then it, and then and it was like- they're not the only one. Yeah, and it was maybe in 2015, it was half of that. So you see in just like three years, they've doubled. Who knows what they are today? And there are other data centers. And what can we do to reduce that footprint? Maybe workloads that are not uh, necessary to respond immediately can move with the sun or move with the energy to another data center. And you can reduce your you know, footprint and things like that. So these are very interesting problems. Can you tell me what role EdgeX Foundry, what its purpose is and how exactly it fits into this microgrid project? For one thing, it's a project that my team and I are working on. One of the merits of it and the ones that I think is very significant is it builds support for multiple southbound device protocols like, you know, co-app and Bluetooth and, you know, just internet IP connectivity types. Well, and weird stuff like Canvas and Modbus and... Exactly. Like Canvas is in your car. So there's so many of these. I mean, do you want to be like each person or each company or each provider? They have to build all these protocols. That's a lot of engineering effort. There's not much value in that once you have it. There's nothing very proprietary. So why don't we, you know, like it's like stone soup. Come together and build it together and all of us leverage it. And that's the value of open source projects. So all boats can float. So that's one of the things that EdgeX does provide, the southbound protocol connectivity. Yeah, you know, I recently interviewed Jason Shepard from Zedita, and he was describing it as it's sort of like a universal API to all these different weird protocols that are trying to express the same thing, like turn this on, turn that off. Exactly. My temperature is 85 degrees, but there's not a universal language for accessing them. Yeah, and, and that's part of like open source when you have a solution. The Rosetta Stone. Yeah, yeah, and then you can have some standardization, some software. Nowadays, standards comes after software, so software is the king that makes it happen. So that's kind of where it's trying to go, and whether you represent it as a JSON object or whatever, but you still need that little conversion layer, and, and that's the beauty. Once it's coming through the Rosetta Stone, you're all talking English or something or whatever. You know? Right. So, I mean, obviously, VMware's business, as far as I know, isn't in delivering microgrids. So how does VMware see Edge and IoT and how the larger business is going to interact with that? It's had starts and stops, IoT and Edge at VMware. We had a special business unit for it. We had a solution called Pulse IoT Center. But it's like having a big company and it's been in the cloud space and it has to pivot. And it takes time for a bigger company versus a small agile company to figure out the economics of it, the scale of it, especially when you're talking in the big cloud space and those sort of prices to smaller edges. But COVID, I think, has done something. It's increased focus on one of our solutions called Workspace One. It has about 21 million endpoints that they monitor and manage, 65,000 customers. And those were always like, you know, your laptops, your cell phones. They had a human behind those edges, behind those 21 million endpoints. But IoT edges don't always have a human over there. I mean, some wind turbines, somewhere, maybe lots of humans, but now one sitting there all the time. I, I think most, most won't. Exactly. So the path to IoT edge now is coming through 
you know, workspace one, they're thinking of connecting to devices, they already have hardware vendors, but it's more becoming like a proxy pass through to a single dashboard. That said, the IoT edge market's going to grow to a trillion dollars. And maybe this is the entry point with the established enterprise customers, but VMware is keeping its eye on the future when there's going to be more edge adoption and at least larger edges, like retail edges type of thing. So that's how we're thinking. And, and you mentioned earlier that that your philosophy of edge, it's not just about literally that edge of the last mile network because it impacts everything. And so it does impact VMware's core business today. Mm-hmm. And there are new opportunities. You know, people are talking about running virtual machines on edge devices. And, you know, as those edge devices look more like servers, they're going to be running VMware. And exactly. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. And there's, there's going to be the telco edge. The telco edge is going to be pretty beefy and it will enable applications like virtual reality and augmented reality connected cars because you'll have to come closer to some place where the car is running as opposed to some cloud far far away because of latency and some edges are going to be very very beefy edges with a lot of compute a lot of knowledge a lot of storage at that edge like the car edge because one time we went camping and there was no cell phone connectivity so you can't believe and trust that you have connectivity somewhere say take a left turn take a right turn or whatever yeah so when you think about edge and open source and IoT and open source, how do you see those relating? What's the, what's the role that open source is playing and why is it so important to you personally and to VMware? You know, they use this word called democratization, making it accessible to more people. So the early, early adopters, the early solutions were those who did like edge to cloud. Okay. I mean, that was like your Google Nest solution, like your Amazon Alexa solution. I say something like, what's the weather like? It goes all the way up to the cloud. It comes back and says, hey, it's sunny in California today. So there were these edge to cloud solutions. And that's fine, especially if you're at home and you have your Wi-Fi. But, you know, as you try to reach a larger landscape of applications and solutions that have different demands, like my nesting that beeped a little while back, you know, I can get out of my front door and maybe walk to the end of the street, which, you know, like at least a like hundred yards before it says beep, somebody came to the door. I mean, that's not enough to catch a robber or anything. Okay. Uh, so you want lower latency. So it's not going to be like from the device to the cloud. It's going to be something much closer, especially for things like, you know, temperature sensors and, you know, am I out of some safe range or a pressure valve or a nuclear power plant, I mean, you're just not going to send it to a faraway point. So that's the thing. And then the early adopters were companies that could do that whole edge to cloud solution. They were already in that space. But now by making these open source projects and a lot of the infrastructure available, you're opening the floodgate to many more adopters and many more applications and and solutions coming to market sooner. Otherwise, who were the ones who made like, it was the AT&Ts and, and Berkeley and all when there was the early days of Linux, uh, pre-Linux. And now Linux is everywhere. Look at the adoption. Look at the possibilities that have opened up. So that's how I view it. Yeah, and that's really interesting. It seems like a lot of technologies that we, I mean, almost take for granted or at least we've allowed to become part of our standard life. The cloud, for instance, you know, even yeah. vaguely defined. You know, developers don't think twice about provisioning an EC2 instance or storing data in S3. And we as individuals don't think twice about using SaaS applications. And so there's a moment, and and we're not there in Edge, and I want to ask you about your sense of timing, but it seems like there's a moment where 
most of us will, well, let's talk about the people that build these things. So the developers and the, and the engineers and the ops people that build these things. There's going to be a moment where, as you said, the edge is just part of the fabric of the internet. And we don't think of it as a separate thing. In fact, maybe we even stop using the word edge for all I know, right? It's just part of the internet. And it becomes a platform. And I think open source is what helps make it a platform because you have these, these standard structural components that, you know, everybody has to do, the sort of like non-valuable heavy lifting, right, <laughs> that everybody has to do. So like you said, in early days, it helps to have a problem you're trying to solve because then you, you shape the domain. You say, well, we only have to do these things and not these things. But at some point, you have a platform that has so many general purpose capabilities. You know, Uber didn't come about because somebody said, it'd be great if I could call a taxi from my phone. And then they built a smartphone and GPS and exactly. ubiquitous LTE and all that. No, all those things existed because of Apple and Verizon and AT&T. And then somebody said, hey, I've got a screen. I can use it in this way. Yeah. yeah. So where, where do you, you look into your crystal ball, where do you see edge computing starting to, to enter that threshold? I think at least another three, four years. That's going to go like that. It's like, I mean, like Kubernetes is at least like, you know, 10 plus years old or even longer. And it had versions, it had Borg, it had something else. Linux is 30 years old. OpenStack is like 10 years old. Just turned 10, yeah. Yeah, it takes time to reach- I think Kubernetes is more like five. Well, it had Borg before, so big- Yeah, brother. yeah, okay, fair enough, fair enough. But it takes time to reach that, that you know, sort of boring as hell kind of thing. It's so easy, you can take it for yeah. granted type. And I think we're not yet there. But even simple things like- a few years back when you're watching a movie on Saturday or Friday night, especially, it would stall, it would glitch because everybody was doing something like downloading, streaming on, you know, like Friday night. So today that experience is much better. And who knows, with Edge, it might even be a virtual game, you know, with like 100 players or whatever. And it might have downloaded it into your little Edge storage cloud somewhere nearby. And then you don't see any glitches. You have great performance. Who knows? You might do surgery from remote. Or without you even asking or knowing, it lowered your electric bill by $30. Yeah. And also it knows that you're going to do some game playing on Friday nights and say, oh, let's see if there's the latest, greatest, some movie or game that you like to play, you know, who knows? Yeah. And and that's like things like analytics. Like today, when you turn on your TV and says, hey, Malini, you might like these movies. It knows, it learns from how you behave and it can put these things ahead of time, like prefetch them for you type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. And and in fact, when you look at like these predictive models, I mean, I mean, you know this very well, machine learning has demonstrated that with the process we have today and the ability to process huge amounts of data and frankly, to, to generate and collect huge amounts of data really powers machine learning to do miraculous things. I mean, to learn on its own, to play video games and things. And so, you know, a lot of these predictive algorithms you know, like the Nest thermostat was an example you used, you know, and it's, I don't know how it is today, but I had one when it first came out and it was okay at predicting, you know, what temperature, when it's just turn the heater on in the morning before I get up, but it was also off all the time. It was just kind of right. But you can see how they will get increasingly accurate the more data they process. Exactly. Yeah, that's really interesting, which suggests that that threshold is going to be enabled by lots of low cost sensors on every device in connected to the internet in some way. You know, whether it's over 5G or Zigbee to Wi-Fi or... Or Bluetooth or whatever or to a central yeah, yeah, yeah. hub. Or any of, those, any of those protocols that you just look at the list of protocols EdgeX Foundry supports. <laughs> yeah. and, that, and that gives you the choice. Yeah, that's, that's, that's really interesting. I want to switch gears a little bit because I understand that for uh, a period in your career, you worked on autonomous vehicles. Is that right? Yeah, very briefly. 
Very briefly. Okay. But, but I assume you have some opinions on them. <laughs> well, I'll ask. I'll ask the opinion. So, so I think, you know, I mean, autonomous vehicles are interesting because, you know, they certainly captured everybody's imagination. And now I think it's like we're in the trough of disillusionment because, you know, the. Oh, no, no. Uh, you know what? It, See, you it's do have amazing. <laughs> so, when I was at Intel, there was one company, I won't name names. It was a small company started by a professor, and he said, you know what, I can, I can do this. I can analyze this image data. I can control the car. And he had like $10,000 worth of hardware in the back in the trunk. Already cars are pretty expensive. But $10,000, it was like humming, buzzing, and then we were going to go for a test drive. I'm not the best driver. And I was a little nervous. I mean, like, I'm not great, and how great is this going to be? So I sat down a little nervous. But in like a few minutes, I felt comfortable. It just took entering into roads that well. Were assisted driving is no, very no, different. No, no, it was fully autonomous. On a on like a downtown road, on like down like downtown yeah, and, with stoplights and, and lights and the whole thing. Yeah, I live here. Okay. Uh, you know, on the wow. border of Cupertino and you know San Jose, West San Jose. Hands off, just ready to grab and stop. Yeah, it drove fully. The only thing is, it was a little slow to enter traffic. It was cautious, which is good. Sure. When it parked, and this was like already like four years ago, when it parked at the curb, it was a little distant from the curb. So something. I mean, that's four years ago. It must have moved so much further, and that's going to revolutionize just about how we behave. I mean, like like when Zipcar came, and do you and I need a car always? Can we share the car? Can somebody just bring the car when I need it? Like I started using Uber so much and not having to deal with airport parking, sure. oh, yeah. break-ins, whatever. And I think it's just kind of amazing over this 30-year span that I've been in this industry, so much has changed. Like All that AI machine learning would not have been possible without all this cheap cloud computing, without all this cheap storage, without, without the data that you need millions and millions of units of to do anything you know, smart or nice, like you mentioned about the Nest thermostat. So, I mean, I think in like another 10, 15 years, it'll be so wonderful and very different. And and it might even liberate older people to go anywhere and everywhere, not just curtail their freedom when they can't drive so well. It might make it all cheaper. It might also make it cleaner. And I think even safer, because sometimes you might not trust that driver. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I believe in a future, and I don't, I think it's more like 10 years off is what you said. Yeah, it's 10 years off where we're going to look back and actually driving a car by hand is going to feel like a rotary telephone. We're just going to be like, I, so different. I can't believe we actually spent time doing this instead of other things that we could do in our car. I mean, we could have a picnic in our car and take a drive, right? I mean, I think it's going to completely change how we relate yeah. to vehicles. And you're right, into ownership. Like, we don't all have to own cars necessarily. We can just, like, lease them when we need them. Like, cloud, it's a cloud. Yeah, it's like cloud servers at Amazon, right? Yeah. And so maybe the car vendors won't like that. Yeah, that's really interesting. So, so as autonomous vehicles relate to edge computing, there's a lot of topics here. But, but one of them is what workloads can run on the car and what workloads can run on the infrastructure. And obviously, deploying an air brag, emergency braking, that, that tight control has to be on the car. You just can't have anything but a very, very discrete, reliable, with lots of backup systems doing it. But as you said, you know, even, even $10,000 of equipment, let alone the quarter million dollars of equipment in a Waymo car, is cost prohibitive for mass markets. That sure will be cost reduced. But even in those cases, right, the best LiDAR in the world can't see around a corner. And so to the degree that 
decision support information can come from the infrastructure or to the degree to reduce cost, I can offload maybe latency sensitive, but not life critical and not latency critical workloads to you know, cloud computers that are at the edge, essentially. How do you think about it? I mean, that's kind of how I think about it, is that there's going to be this a set of trade-offs. Some things have to run the car, some have to run the cloud. There's going to be cost equations, benefit equations. How do you think about it? I really feel everything will have to be in the car. I mean, that experience when I was going on a camping trip in Canyon Territory and not having connectivity, my kids were bored, of course. So I was like, what do I do here? I said, look at the stars. But you don't have connectivity. You can't rely on something... Anything life critical. Well, you don't have to rely on it. But again, look at the turning around, turning corners example, looking around corners. No. So, so, so I think maybe, you know, like you'll have to have a little something peeping out around the corner or go slower because it's a corner and you don't have visibility. Like, let's just think about the holy grail is getting to a point as a good human driver. Okay. And, and it's going to definitely be better than a good human driver because there's no fatigue. There's no drunken driving, all that. So, just like you wouldn't overtake a car on a curvy road, you know, with all those dash lines and all, this car is also not going to do it. It might even have to slow down. So I think it's going to become like that. That's interesting. Yeah, that, that's that's an interesting heuristic. I, I think I off the top of my head agree with that, that to, to reach equality with a human driver, we probably want that function on the car. I'm being cautious first. Although it'll, it'll constantly, you know, the, the models of potentially constantly be upgraded and things like that. Exactly. But there are things, like I do think like, you know, you look at some of the environmental things, like one of the things with just improving traffic flow. And sure, people have envisioned these, you know, networks of cars that collectively, you know, beehive themselves into, into flow. But it also makes sense to say, look, there could be some local, I don't want to say centralized, but it's not really centralized, but metro centralized processing that can coordinate all the cars, all the lights, all the freeway patterns, knows when people get off work, knows these things. And again, could see around a corner because the benefit of seeing around a corner is, you know, when you're driving in a car and you've got a human driver, we put our seatbelts on and we feel safe with our seatbelts. We're looking out the window. We want to see what's going on. You know, we've got people that are telling you how to drive because there's lots of things going on that potentially you don't see. And that's the worst because something kind of steps out in front of you and you have to do like a drastic braking action. Well, imagine we're having a picnic in the back and where none of us are looking outside, none of us are, you know, and then there's a sudden break and all the food goes flying, right? Yeah. And so you, you can imagine that, well, what you really want to do is you want to have some knowledge about that car that you can't see or that pedestrian you can't see and gradually break mm-hmm. up until the intersection. But I could also see how that, that isn't the primary solution that you need to solve. Right. But but that is like the the best situation that you can be totally you know agnostic of what's happening. You're safe. Maybe it'll say beep beep beep. You know, brace. There's something happening. Right. <laughs> like in Massachusetts, a deer might just jump out. Or like the airplanes, the pilot recommends you keep your seatbelt fastened you know, while you're seated because <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. Right. So they call these like levels L1, L2. That's L4. That's pretty far off. Yeah. And also there's ethical considerations. Who's at fault if there's a software issue, blah, 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 a whole bunch of things. Yeah, a lot of it's going to be just legislation. Yeah, insurance and legislation and all that. A lot of interesting things to to work out. But it's exciting. Yeah. It's just the future. And then, and I also wonder how vehicle companies will feel. I mean, this software can run on any 
any car at that point. And there'll just be some differences on how fast the data comes from the cameras, how quickly the brakes respond, how well they respond. And maybe in car A, you have to give it like one second in another car, maybe half a second for it to do it. So there'll be some tuning per car. And that can also be learned just like the Nest thermostat learning. You know, this house is very leaky, not well insulated. I have to start heating it sooner. It won't hold the heat that long. So there are going to be some analogies like that. But even assisting people right now is is, is a good aim. Yeah, certainly. Certainly. Yeah. I think the trick with that seems to be getting people to not trust it completely autonomously. Yeah, I'm not great at trusting, so I'm not in that category. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not that either, right? <laughs> Beep, you looked away. Um, so I want to ask you a couple last questions before we wrap up. One of them is, you know, you're deep into the edge ecosystem right now. And I'm interested in knowing what is changing the fastest from your perspective? What's changing fast and accelerating and interesting in that way? Just the number of applications people are coming up with. It's it's like that crowdsourcing the ideas. It's so fertile. It's just like that thing you mentioned, you know, the cell phone came and people started saying, hey, what all can I make possible? Like yesterday, my son was making peach crumble. He says, recipes for peach cobbler or crumble or something. And you know what? In the old days, you had like a recipe book somewhere, you had bookmarked something your grandmother had done. It was so different. And if you didn't have the book and you didn't find it and blah, blah, blah. Now it's in everyone's hands, you know, it's, it just is a future that was not imaginable before and it's happening. And for me, that's what this edge thing is. And, and last year we had the good fortune to work with the University of San Francisco computer science students. We went there, a bunch of other companies came to and they pitched, you know, this is what I work on. Would you like to do a project on this? And it was overwhelming. We had 10 teams wanting to work with us and we had just two of us there to be like, you know, guides. We said, no, we can't do it. We'll do one undergraduate and one, you know, graduate team. And then we said, okay, let's do three. Because it's kind of hard to say no to so many people. And we're also excited. And the students came up with such cute things. Like we said, here's EdgeX. This is some of the ideas. And we kind of pushed in some directions too, you know, seeing where their minds were. One young woman and her team basically said, you know, I work with shelters. Could I have a camera and at that camera, you know, look at your face and say, are you one of the inmates that are allowed to come in? And this is, it's a rolling population at the shelter. Maybe this month it's ABCD and next month it's somebody else. And so you have to be able to recognize their face and you have to also say who's in, who's out and also the record who came and went just for their safety. And she wanted to do it cheaply. So EdgeX was free and they had smart brains. This little team of four. They thought of it. They also got their hands dirty with a little bit of machine learning. They had to save the model at the edge. They trained it somewhere in the cloud and pushed it there. Cloud is in this case a laptop. But they realized it. The camera is like $35, Raspberry Pi another $40. And they had this personalized recognition system. Another team, we said, think about the smart grid because I was already thinking about the smart grid and said, and you guys have worked on um, blockchain. I want to sell, I want to buy. And, you know, all of them have to go to some like kind of marketplace. So is it decentralized? How much do I have? Who's bidding? Who's ready to pay what? And you have that commerce going. And they did their project. It was cool. And they had so much good knowledge from their blockchain teacher, but this was a, a practical use of it, see? 
And then I might just spike the price because I know Matt wants to, you know, run his tape recorder now or whatever. Because <laughs> he, he did it at three o'clock every every day before. Yeah. So we're going right. to raise it. We double the price, surge pricing when he... Uh... <laughs> exactly. Just like, you know, it was starting with Uber. And then uh, another team, they were so cool. So you have maybe a thermostat from one company and it talks Bluetooth and something else from another company and your television. And right now, even my washer dryer are IoT enabled. He said, but what if Matt comes home and he wants to kick his feet up and have a drink? It's usually what I want to do when I come home. Cook dinner. (laughs) So what if there's a smart flow? It knows, okay, it's evening, it's six o'clock, Matt's going to come home and it automatically does all this. And these kids did it, these young people. That's, That's really neat. And the first month or so they did no code. They were first like, how do we abstract it? How do we able to give these flows? And how do we say it's a rainy day floor, evening floor, and which should I look at the light thing? It was so awesome. And that's for me what's awesome, the interest. And right now they're like conferences with tracks for IoT. There was a conference called, you know, open networking something, and they made it once for open networking and edge. So there's a full track these days for IoT and edge. There's the 5G track, and that's going to enable much more. So from a conference perspective, from the number of people come for it, there's so much uptake. So that's what's changing for me, that it's becoming so affordable and people can experiment with $35 Raspberry Pis, little sensors, little cameras. Anything is possible with all the smart brains and ability to do things now. That's really neat. And I can tell you're passionate about it. You just lit up when you talked about that. That's really neat. And that's actually a nice segue in, into my next question. And I know this is showing edge computing, but the role of women in technology is near and dear to my heart. I mean, any minority in technology is near and dear to my heart. And so you've had a long career and you are a scientist. So what, what was your experience like and what advice do you have to young women that are maybe considering technology careers? You know, we have got to catch them at the school level. At the middle school level itself, you lose so many people. And it's surprising we don't lose them in India at that level at all. We can't give them all parents that are astrophysicists or astronomers <laughs> yeah. and physicists. But, but in the U.S., there's a larger loss, and I don't know why. And, and it's surprising and it's sad. In India, we have lots more women going into engineering and science and technology. Do you know what the percentage is? Nearly 50. Really? Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. That sounds like a system we should model. I, I wonder what that is. So That's many really women yeah. engineers come out of India. And... And of course, in my generation, like some of my colleagues decided not to get married because you're going to be perceived as less committed, etc. I just happened to be lucky and I did go the marriage and the children and I have two children path. But another good friend of mine who is a, you know, quantum mechanic scientist, I mean, she works at BARC, she decided to not go the family path and be taken seriously as a scientist. So it's kind of sacrifices and those are less now, but they're still very significant. Last week we had, you know, a panel talk like how do you juggle families, especially in these COVID times. And it's amazing hearing some of the stories. Some women had to hide their pregnancy still. It was pretty, you know, you can't hide it anymore. The baby's here type of thing. Yeah. And even then it was it was harder in those days, even in terms of maternity leave. You might get six weeks. And nowadays we even have paternity leave. So the industry yeah. has moved so much to make it possible for women to have a career and raise families and not just give up that part of their life. Another thing is don't let anybody tell you you can't do it, uh, you know, that you're not smart in science or math. It's all about perseverance, 
working at it and then you know those solutions do come out it is an aha moment when it clicks in your brain and we're all wired smart maybe we have some differences in our cognitive skills somebody has spatial skills somebody has language skills somebody has emotional skills but we need all those skills and i think you know as an industry we're beginning to value women more we're even giving paternity leave and more maternity leave is a big big step in the right direction did you have to change anything about uh, yourself to be taken more seriously as a scientist? I, when I was going into engineering school for computer science, it was like a very competitive exam. And several thousands did it in India. This was for a top school. Uh, the top 20 people the dean of engineering wanted to meet. So there were two of us, two women. We went there and he was like, you're a woman because you can't tell from the last name. Interesting. I said, yeah. He, and he was like apoplectic, belligerent, and, you know, you're a waste of resources. It's a very good school. It's a government school. It's, it's you know, you'll just sit at and, home. And this is because you, you... I'm a woman. But you ace it on the test. You ace the test, you're saying. Yeah, you know, in the top 20, in the 10,000 or whatever. Yeah, that's, that's acing it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 not the first try. But still, his point was, you're a woman, you'll get married, you'll stay home, and, you know, some man would have finish the course, would go take a job, would feed a family, would be useful to society. Wow, that's infuriating. And both of us women finished the course. Neither of us gave it up, so it didn't matter if he went red in the face. Uh, but we both studied, we both did well, we both have worked in industry, we have kids who are in the industry now. So that was how we were taken very seriously as resource waste. And when we were interviewing, if we got a job, the guys would say, oh, well, you know, you're a woman, so you got it. Or your dad works here and you got it or some rubbish. And these same men today, now we're back in touch with them with WhatsApp. They're very different now. They've matured. They have spouses and they take women more seriously. They have daughters. They're proud of their daughters. So things have changed. And these people now are VPs and senior engineers and entrepreneurs. So it's changing, but it's slow. Yeah, and it's a, it's a multi-generational problem. I mean, yeah. just in the story you told, the reason you went into technology is because your father yeah. was sort of in that space. And of course, it sounds like potentially one of the reasons your children went into technology is because you're in yeah. that space. And so, yeah, as these, as these attitudes change and as, we, as more people are educated and they yeah. have children, we're going to be seeing a transformation. Well, that's a really optimistic point of view. And it's nice, it's nice to hear. So, Malini, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. This was a great conversation and I uh, look forward to seeing what you and VMware and Edge Foundry do next. I had a blast. Thank you, Matt. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of the Magnificent Seven. Vapor.io, Packet, Seagate, Catchpoint, Ori Industries, Zenlayer, and NetFoundry. To get in touch with the show, email us at team at overtheedgepodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Over the Edge is brought to you by Vapor.io, the leader in edge computing. We want to be your solution partner for the new internet. Our edge co-location, edge networking, and edge exchange is built atop the world's fastest growing edge platform, the Kinetic Edge. Whether you're a telco looking to deploy 5G, a cloud provider seeking the fastest path to edge AI, or a network operator looking to exchange traffic in edge locations, Vapor.io is your solution partner for the new internet. Learn more at vapor.io.